Good evening. My name is Terry Carter. It's my honor and pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight. I didn't know the senior minister was going to steal all my thunder. <laughs> it, at this time is when we normally thank everyone that's been involved in our uh, Barton Clinton Gordy series. I want to do that tonight in a little bit different fashion. It is almost spring break, so tonight we're going to have a midterm exam. Now, I see a little bit of apprehension out there. Let me first tell you, this is going to be an open book test, the kind that David Wiggs excelled in in college. And not only is it going to be open book, but I'm going to give you the answers before I ask the questions. So pay attention. Three families that thought bringing in outstanding speakers, men and women, to this pulpit every year was worth their financial commitment and reputation by being named sponsors. A dedicated and loving staff led uh, most ably by their senior minister. A toe-tapping, heart-thumping choir that inspires us 52 weeks out of the year a dedicated group of volunteers that make, uh, uh, that make hospitality synonymous with Boston Avenue Church. Two Sunday school classes that have redesigned the words servant leaders in our church and in our community. A supportive congregation that seeks to understand and experience the love of Jesus Christ. So now the question. What ingredient does it take to have a premier lecture series? The answer, all the above. Yeah. This is the advanced group. Before I introduce the bishop, I'd like to clear up one thing from last night. He shared with us his dissatisfaction at being 55 years old. I just wanted to tell him I too share that dissatisfaction <laughs> as I have done the last 10 years. <laughs> so enough said about that. Our speaker is a native of West Virginia, uh, a graduate of West Virginia Wesleyan College, holds a Master of Divinity from Duke University and, a doctor, and, and earned his doctorate from the uh, United Theological School. He served churches in West Virginia and then was elected bishop in 2004 and has been assigned to the Pittsburgh area where he oversees uh, about 830 churches. The bishop's ministry has not been confined to the walls of the church. His mission experiences led him around the world, Africa, Argentina, Israel, Mexico, Russia, and this is where he's ministered not only to Christians, but non-Christians alike. The bishop serves as chair of the United Methodist Global Health Initiative, which has raised over $53 million to eliminate malaria-related deaths throughout the world. I missed the lunch on Sunday, so I don't have a lot of other stories. So, I, But I will close in saying he is the husband to Sally and father to Elizabeth, TJ, Ian, and Nick. After a, another anthem from this great choir, uh, please join me in welcoming our speaker back to the pulpit for the concluding presentation of the 2014 Barton Clinton Gordy series, uh, Bishop Thomas J. Bickerton. Thank you.
Well, let's thank them. What do you say? I'm going to come down here for a couple minutes uh, this evening. Um, <coughs> just kind of leading the choir out. I told you our first night together that um, my mentor in ministry was Bishop W. Kenneth Goodson. And I had the privilege of sitting at his feet uh, for several years. And one of the great joys of, uh, of sitting at Bishop Goodson's feet was, uh, as I shared with you the other night, being able to travel with him to various places where he was called upon to speak. And at the end of every one of those uh, speaking engagements that I had the privilege of uh, sitting at his feet, Bishop Goodson would, use, would always say these words. And they, uh, they were used consistently everywhere he went. He said the same thing all the time. And uh, the, the, the first time I heard him repeat it, I thought, well, I wonder how genuine that is, because he repeated the same thing. But then I kept looking at his face, and I knew that he was at a stage in his life where he had just retired from, act, from his act of episcopacy and was in that last chapter of his life. And everywhere he went, it was as if he, he had this opportunity to feed off of uh, the spiritual lives of the people that he was called upon to serve. And I was always so deeply impacted by that. So much so that uh, when I have these occasions, I find myself on occasion uh, saying what I'll say to you now, which is a quote from him. Bishop Goodson always said at the, at the very last presentation that he made, I don't know what I've done for you but I do know what you've done to me. I don't know what I've done for you, but I do know what you've done to me. Wow. That, that just uh, continues to be, I conjure up that memory of him because it was so genuine in his heart and soul. I, I say that genuinely to you tonight how deeply I have been impacted by this choir. My goodness, what a rich gift you are. And Joel, what a gifted leader you are. How blessed this church is to have you. For years, for years, as a young pastor in West Virginia, I watched from afar and was, uh, I've known a Boston Avenue church for years. Uh, because of this wonderful legacy of, man, of a man by the name of Muzon Biggs. And what a gift uh, that those 30, uh, what, 33 years uh, has been to this church. And so many of you have commented to me over uh, these last few days of how deeply that man has impacted your life and the integrity of his life. And uh, I'm just honored uh, to be in a place where he spent so many years. Um, to be impacted by this staff... Uh, what a, I said this yesterday, what a blessing you are uh, to this church. And uh, they are gifted and committed. We had, when we had lunch yesterday, uh, it was just amazing to me when we went around the circle. I've been here 12 years. I've been here 14 years. I've been here 9 years. I've been here 20 years. I mean, it's just like they love you. And you can't get rid of them because they love you so much. And, and, and then uh, the bishop, in his infinite wisdom, figured out that there was somebody that loved you so much, he sent, he sent him back to you. <laughs> um, but you're blessed. <clears throat> uh, 
And, uh, and I, I operate off of a very simple conviction. That very simple conviction is this. Uh, we together are a better reflection of Jesus than any of us can be on our own. We together are a better reflection of Jesus than any of us can be on our own. And so I've been deeply touched by you and your graciousness and your hospitality. I'll never forget you. Never. It's been a great blessing for me. And so I, I just feel full this evening in expressing my gratitude to you. You've come along at just the right time for me. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful. I, uh, I said to you when we first started that uh, when I was thinking about this time together, I, 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 I uh, wondered what, what was God going to lead me to do with you and, and to share with you. And I pondered over that for a long, this advance notice has its underbelly. You know, you think about it for a long, what am I going to do someday when I get to Boston Avenue? <laughs> so I think about that and I've been wondering about it for some time. And I shared with you the first night we were here, the first day we were here, that... Um, I had this, uh, this very emotional time last fall of moving my parents to Florida. And uh, at 78 years of age, my mom and dad have, have had a, a kind of a hard road. Uh, my dad worked for 32 years for Fostoria Glass Company before the glass company was bought out and shut down, and my dad lost his job. And my father was unable to retire until just last year at age 78. And uh, they have a very meager existence. And so I'm in their tiny cracker box house, um, uh, packing this house up. And, uh, you know, it, it really is amazing, this journey of life, because there I sit, and I, you know, and I, I, I don't mind to say this. I sit there on the floor of my parents' house, and I am a bishop of the United Methodist Church. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, I'm a bishop of the United Methodist Church. I, I know how to do that. And I presided at general conference. I know how to do that. I think I'm a fairly good presider. I have even spoken to the General Assembly of the United Nations. I've traveled all over the world. But last November, I was a 12-year-old again. Nothing but Jim and Marlene's son. Now, frankly, I've been somewhat worried about our church. Uh, our church kind of gives me some fits sometimes because, as I suggested to you a couple times during our time together, I think maybe we're trying too hard. We're trying desperately to figure out how to be vital in the 21st century. How do we remain uh, on the cutting edge as a church? We've got these issues, social issues and other issues that confront the church. We're trying to figure it all out. And as I, as I move across the church, it seems to me that what we're trying to do is a very human thing. We are trying to figure out how this church is going to make it. And as I sat in my mom and dad's room, I moved from every room to that house. When I finally got it all cleaned out, I went into each room of my parents' house. And I sat on the floor and I had these memories that flooded me about this particular room. And then I prayed a prayer of thanksgiving, and I moved to the next room. And I had these thoughts and reflections and prayed, and then I moved to the next room. And as I moved from, the, from one room to the next, what continued to come to my mind was um, there are simple things 
that remain foundational marker points for my life. And they really don't have much to do about those human mechanisms that we're trying to figure out. They have everything to do about what it means to be a little 12-year-old boy who learns how to embrace faith. And those concepts are the concepts that have carried me through my whole life. It was then in the floor on, on 112 Poplar Avenue that I decided I knew what I wanted to do at Boston Avenue. Because really, when you think about it, if we really are trying to, if we're trying awfully hard to figure it all out, may, maybe it is that we just need to remember the one who claims us and calls us and loves us with a love that will not let us go. And it's just as simple as that. And when I think about my personal journey, I do think that I wouldn't be standing here today if it wasn't for a relationship. I, I'm convinced my, my grandparents sat on the fourth pew on the right at Calvary Church, Moundsville. I have no idea why Jim and Marlene sat with Jamie and I back in the last row in the back. Maybe that's a commentary on my behavioral pattern. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I, and when church was over, and everybody was leaving church as a little squirt, I left the back row and came up to the fourth row to see my grandparents. And I tell folks that's why I have a bald spot today because as I'm walking down the aisle, all these people at the church patted my head and they wore all the hair off the top of my head. I, I, I've come to a realization that in this journey, there's nothing more precious than a relationship. For in relationship, we find the heart of God. I have found that in this very complicated thing called life where there are ups and downs and twists and turns, I, I like to say that life is a roller coaster ride. It's, it's ups and downs, twists and turns. Every once in a while, a scary little tunnel comes along, and you just got to hold on. In the midst of that journey, there is nothing like a simple faith, a faith that says beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but, we are, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus love, loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so. And <clears throat> I've discovered that in this roller coaster thing called life, as you, <clears throat> as you go through these twists and turns and these ups and downs and these hills and valleys, that there are times that we become very human in the journey. And I am grateful for the people in my life from the time I was a little squirt until today, the people in my life who have had the courage to look at me and say, you know, your attitude's in the wrong place. You really need to shape it up just a little bit, man. You've got so much going for you. Don't be a grumble butt. You have the gift of being able to be a partner with so many people in the, in the uh, revelations of what God has in store for us. And so that's what I wanted to share with you these last three nights. I wanted to talk about relationships and wanted to talk about faith and wanted to talk about attitude. And so here we are on the last night together. <clears throat> and I originally said that I wanted to talk about love, and uh, the, the subject that I am going to talk about tonight is intimately tied into love. But I wanted to make a little bit of a shift tonight. And I wanted to leave you with this one final message. 
So tonight I invite you into the heart of God with me as we explore uh, one final simple word for a complex world. And that word tonight is joy. Joy. So I want to share with you a passage of scripture from John chapter 15 verses 9 through 12. Jesus said, and did you know that Jesus had a mission statement? We, we talk about, we know what the mission statement of the United Methodist Church is, to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Jesus had a mission statement. It's found in these verses. Like Terry, I'll give you the answer. <laughs> Jesus said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and become my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now here's Jesus' mission statement. I have said these things to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. Isn't that a great line? I have said these things to you so that, those are the key words, so that my joy might be in you, and that your joy may be complete. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Oh, you do that really well. I'm grateful. Thank you. Would you pray with me? God, uh, we give you so much thanks for this day. What a beautiful day. Uh, as some people know in this room, I had a chance to play golf today. God, I just uh, saw your creation in marvelous ways out there. And once in a while, it happened in a good golf shot. Thank you for the fellowship that I've had today. Thank you for the fellowship that we've had around meal tonight, the fellowship we've had this week in this precious space, the fellowship that we have with you every day. We're grateful. For indeed, in this very complicated journey that we call life, we know that the journey continues because of you. And tonight we focus on how that journey might continue with joy. 
For we know, God, that we can all affirm in this room that this journey called life is a whole lot shorter than what we realize. And before long, we blink our eyes and many things have passed. So we pray that in this moment, at 7.36 in the evening, on this night, we might just give you a little bit of our time. And we pray that you might speak to us. And so, God, in these moments, I would pray a personal prayer that either through me or in spite of me, you might speak to these folks who are here tonight. Bless this church and bless our journey in your name. Amen. Now, I've confessed to you a little bit this evening that I, I don't know what kind of winter season you've had, but, but mine has been at times a little bit of a struggle for joy. Just a little bit of a struggle for joy. Now, Pittsburgh has had this unbelievable winter. I mean, feet of snow and, and days that you can count on one hand where the temperature's been above freezing. And that'll work on your soul a little bit, you know, a little bit of struggle for joy after a while. I love all four seasons, but man, it's gotten a little bit too much. I'm ready for a change. All these transitions that have been happening, I've, I found myself asking around that question, joy, what is it? What is it that gives God joy? What is it that consistently gives God joy? And how can I find that joy in the midst of the jungle in which we live? And indeed, we live in a jungle. It's a crazy world, isn't it? Now, I, I want to paint a picture for you tonight of joy. I have, a, uh, I have a woman in my conference staff who is our camping director, and Jessica is the mother of Skye. Skye is this delightful, growing uh, little girl, and uh, recently, because of some babysitting problems, uh, Jess has had to bring Skye to the office. So I'm heading back that way the other day, and I come around the corner, and in the hallway is Sky. Now, Sky is, is probably about this tall. And Sky was, uh, she was just having the time of her life. She was making these kooky little faces. And she was making these funny little sounds. And she was just dancing a little jig. I mean, she was just going to town. Until she caught my eye. She saw me froze in her tracks. I walked up to her and I said, having a good day, aren't you? She said, yep. And I nodded and she nodded. I went my way and she went hers. Now I've got to confess to you. Later on, I was very disappointed in myself. I should have stopped and danced with sky the invitation to dance was right in front of me and i let it pass now that's a commentary on life friends i believe that we are so addicted to living and living for me means making the next meeting moving from one moment to the next striving for the next goal that we forget to dance and we forget about joy. Now, there are two categories of my existence. Waiting to live, 
and living. Waiting to live and living. Now, the truth be told, I spend most of my life waiting to live. I drive a lot. It's hard to live when you're driving. Driving, standing in line, getting the next task finished, worrying about something that might happen, or fussing about something that has happened. But little Sky, she just lives innocently, happily, joyfully. Her life is an invitation to dance in the midst of the jungle in which we live. I believe that joy is central to the heart of our God. One day, Jesus shared with his disciples that mission statement that I shared with you just a few moments ago. I came so that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be complete. You see, the problem in this room tonight is not that we are happy and we need to be serious. It's that we're all serious and we deserve joy. I believe that joy in the most innocent dancing child that you can see is only a fraction of the joy that God possesses. God's joy, I believe, is as full as it can be. When my kids were small, it didn't matter what I did. I I could tell a funny story. I could make a silly sound. I could play some crazy game. And it didn't matter what it was, whenever I'd do that funny sound, silly game, no matter what it was, when I would finish, my kids would say those infamous words, do it again, Daddy. Do it again. Do it again, Daddy. And I would. Over and over and over again till I thought I was going to die. Grown-up people are not capable of such repetitive monotony. But God is. God is. Grown-up people are just a little too stiff. The reality of it is, it's very possible that things do not grow old with our God. That God says in the morning, good morning, son. And the sun comes up. And the next morning, God says, do it again. And it comes up again. And in the evening, when the moon pops up, God says, do it again. And it does. Could it be possible that with every act of creation, God says with the joy of repetition, do it again. Do it again. Can you imagine that maybe, maybe, it it may not be automatic that all daisies are alike. Could it be that maybe God makes every daisy separately and has never grown tired of making them? Millennium after millennium after millennium of daisies. Not good for anything, but God hasn't grown tired of them. The angels say, God, what are you going to do today? God says, I think I'll make me a daisy. 
Why? Because our God has an infinite capacity for joy. The old writer G.K. Chesterton once wrote these words. They are very profound words. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, It may be that God has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our God is younger than we. Now I want to repeat that. I want you to listen to it real carefully. It may be that God has the eternal appetite for infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our God is younger than we. When I started to date Sally Forbes, one of the things that she had such a hard time with was the fact that I wear a size 15 shoe and I'm six foot seven inches tall. She's not that. She's, she's a normal sized person. I'm not. But one of, the, one of the real gifts in our life was one night we were coming home from a date and I'm walking her to the door of her place and we're walking up the steps and she gets to the second step and all of a sudden, David, she realizes I've leveled the playing field. <laughs> and Sally turned and we were eyeball to eyeball. Every chance Sally and I get whenever we find a set of stairs, that kiss that we kissed that night on those steps is replicated every chance we get because Sally really likes it when the playing field's leveled. <laughs> and frankly, her husband doesn't mind it so much either. <laughs> we have replicated that over and over and over again. It hasn't lost its innocence. Neither has it lost its meaning. You see, I'm convinced that many problems in our world exist today because original events are not replicated. And if they are, they've lost their innocence and their meaning, their joy and their vitality. It can be as simple as a kiss on the stairs or as profound as not missing a moment ever to look someone in the eye and say, I love you. We've lost that sense of repetition for we have sinned and grown old and our God is younger than we. Our source of joy and vitality is our God. What would Genesis chapter 1 look like if God were not joyful and treated like life like we do? You ever thought about that? What would Genesis chapter 1 be like if God were not joyful and treated life like we do? Might go something like this. In the beginning, it was 9 o'clock a.m. and God had to go to work. God filled out a requisition form to separate the light from the darkness. God contemplated putting stars in the heavens but considered it to be too much work. Besides that, God said, it's not my job and decided to knock off early and call it a day. And when God looked at all that God had done, God said, eh, it'll have to do. <laughs> On the second day, 
God separated the dry land from the water and made all the dry land flat, flat and plain and functional so that the entire earth looked like a Walmart parking lot. God thought about making mountains and valleys and glaciers and jungles and forests, but hey, it wasn't worth the effort. And God looked at all that God had done and God said, eh, it'll have to do. Third day, God made a pigeon to fly, a carp to swim, a cat to creep, and thought about making all kinds of other species of animals in sizes and shapes, but God could not drum up any enthusiasm for any of that. In fact, God wasn't too crazy about the cat. <laughs> and besides that, it was just about time for Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> and God looked at all that God had done, and God said, eh, it'll have to do. By the end of the week, God was seriously burned out. And God breathed a big sigh of relief and said, thank me, it's Friday. End of chapter 1. <laughs> we all know that Genesis looks nothing like that. God spoke, and it was so. And God said, it is good. God took great joy in the work of God's hands. On the first day, it was a day of the dance. And at the end of it, God danced. On the second day, God said to the light, do it again, and it did. And it did it again and again and again, and our God has never grown tired of it. I know that for a fact because my faith says I can't make the sun rise. But I believe I know the one who does. See, I believe that we will not understand the full scope of our God until we realize that God quite possibly could be the happiest being in the universe. It's not the cast of Glee, not the fans of Downton Abbey, not Justin Timberlake. It is our God. Now, God also knows sorrows. Jesus was described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I believe that the sorrow of God and the anger of God are only temporary responses to life in the jungle, responses to a fallen world. I want to hang my hat on this thought, that joy is God's eternal desire, God's basic declaration. Can you maybe leave tonight with the thought that maybe, just maybe, God is the happiest being in the universe? And joy is God's desire for us. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a story. He uses three key illustrations in the, in the story. He talks about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And at the conclusion of these stories in Luke chapter 15, Jesus says these words. Just so I tell you. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, you know what that means to me? Anytime, anytime anyone lives to God, 
there is joy in heaven. Anytime somebody gets it right, God rejoices. Now here's the truth about you and me. You were made for joy. And to miss it is to miss the real reason why you were created. C.S. Lewis once said, joy is the serious business of heaven. The scriptures say, rejoice in the Lord, how often? Always. And again I say, well, you, I was, that was really kind of pathetic. <laughs> Let's try that. Rejoice in the Lord. Always. And again I say, there oh, you got it. Joy is commanded. The problem is, a lot of us in this room lack joy because you feel guilty a lot in your life. And now that you know joy is commanded, you're going to feel guilty because you don't feel joyful. <laughs> so here it is. It's okay to be joyful. It's, it's more than okay to pursue joy. In fact, I'd like for you to turn to your neighbor right now, find somebody you can look eyeball to eyeball, and simply say, I give you permission to relentlessly pursue joy. Go ahead, you can do it. I give you permission to relentlessly pursue joy. That's all I ask you to talk about now. You don't need to talk about anything else. I believe that there is joy when we strive for a Christ-centered existence. I think that's the only true road to joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Truth is, you really can be a joyful person with God's help. It's possible. The Bible wouldn't say it if it weren't so. Reality is, we've talked this week about what we have to do to take responsibility. And I think we have to take responsibility for our joy. The lack of it isn't due to the jungle out there. It's not up to your boss whether or not you're joyful, not, not up to your loved one, not up to your peers or your parents. It's your responsibility. Now, for some of us in this room, it's just not going to be very easy because I believe that there are people who are joy-impaired, joy-challenged. So, some of you are just going to have to fight for it every day of your life. But you can be a joyful person. The first step of faith is to believe that it's really possible for you with God's help. Now the critical question that we have to ask before we go home tonight is this basic question. When will you practice joy? Psalm 118 verse 24 says, This is the day the Lord has made. When will you practice joy? This is the day. This is the day the Lord has made. This is the day of rejoicing. This is the day of the innocent dance. It does not say tomorrow is the day. But some live under the illusion that I'll be happy someday when my conditions change. Now, you know, we all know that that's true. When you were in school, if you're anything like me, when you're in school, you said, I'll be happy when I get out of school. When you're single, you say, I'll be happy when I get married. When you're married, you say, I'll be happy when we have kids. When you have kids, you'll say, I'll be happy when the kids go to college. <laughs> when the kids go to college, you'll say, well, we'll be happy when we have grandkids. When you have grandkids, you'll say, we'll be happy when the grandkids come to visit. 
When the grandkids come to visit, you say, we'll be happy when they go home. <laughs> when you get old, you say, I'll be happy when I retire. And if you're not careful, when you retire, you come to the realization that you missed a whole heck of a lot on the journey because you were waiting for something to make you happy. The Bible doesn't say tomorrow is the day. The Bible says today is the day. But how can I embrace joy in the midst of all the pain and suffering in the world? Is it right to be joyful in the midst of war and chaos and hunger, injustice and violence? How can I find joy in the midst of all that? Well, any teaching about joy that doesn't acknowledge the struggle with the reality of the jungle out there is glib and superficial. But there is a, a surprising discovery. We talked about it last night. Very often, the people who are closest to pain and suffering are the ones who find joy most readily. I have been to Africa, Argentina, Mexico, Russia. I have seen people who have had absolutely nothing in their lives. Nothing. Except joy. Because they know that if it wasn't for the presence of God in their lives, they wouldn't even have that. And that they can make it through no matter what. If they have God in their lives, they've found joy. You see, the test of real and authentic joy is, does it exist in the midst of pain? Joy in this life is almost always a joy that is found in spite of something. And that's what we have to think and pray about. Now, what one of my great fear is, fears is, is if you don't embrace the joy today, if you don't dance the dance today, maybe you won't. Or like we said yesterday, if you wait until your conditions are perfect, you might wait until you die. Life isn't perfect. Your spouse isn't perfect. Your kids aren't perfect. Your relatives, your in-laws, your friends, none of them are perfect. If you're going to rejoice, this is the day. In spite of all the imperfections, this is the time. In spite of all the obstacles, this is the moment. For God commands us to be joyful. So how can I pursue this joy tonight? Well, before I leave you, I want to offer you three pathways into joy, three very simple things that I would encourage you to think about doing as you continue to think about being a joyful person in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and as you create and continue to create this wonderful light of joy called Boston Avenue. Number one, I would encourage you to hang around joyful people. Proverbs 15.30 says this, The light of someone's eyes will cause rejoicing in your heart, and the good news of others will refresh your body. In other words, we can feed off of one another. Now take a look around you. Uh, it's a pretty sobering thing when you do that, because the, the reality is there are people around you who have rejected joy. And they're not going to get it. They, they won't pursue joy. They don't, they don't want you to have any joy either. Give them power and they'll suck all the joy right out of you. 
They're here. They're in this room. I, I have said for years, as I've traveled all across this connection, I've said for years that I believe in some settings we should replace the United Methodist symbol with a picture of Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Because that's the way United Methodist people talk. You know the story. You know the rhythm. Your grandchildren have know about Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh says, oh, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. And Eeyore says, yeah, but it's going to rain before the day's over. Oh, dear. Lost my tail again. That's the way United Methodist people talk. I've encountered them all over the world. Oh, dear. Don't like our church. Oh, dear. Church is going down the tubes. Oh, oh dear. I, that we, it, it, we won't keep him very long. He'll go somewhere else. Oh, dear. Truth is, there are joy-destroying people in the world. Some of them in your, are in your life. I would encourage you to limit your exposure to them <laughs> while you are trying to get healthy in embracing joy. So what I need you to do tonight is to think about the people that bring you joy. When you think of them, something just lights up in you. Make a joy appointment with them because they light you up. You need them. Surround yourself with joyful people. Two, practice the discipline of celebration. Practice the discipline of celebration. It can be a spiritual discipline. You see, some of you who are joy-impaired need to have, quite frankly, an innocent dance day. It's okay. Most of us in this room can't dance very well at all. I, I'm just making an assumption. I think that's probably right. You're a little self-conscious about it. Do the things that bring you joy and give thanks to the God who gave those things to you. Sometimes we get into a rut. Do some things that bring freshness to your life. Do someone a favor today and, and devote a day to the discipline of celebration. I mean, it's really a, a rush to let someone go in front of you for a change. It's, it's really great when you give someone an outrageous compliment. It makes you feel pretty good when you send someone a special card that you're thinking about. Oh, come on. When you, leave, when you leave tonight, take a $5 bill out of your pocket and drop it on the city street and just think of the joy someone will have when they walk down the street and say, hey, I found a $5 bill. Practice the discipline of celebration. And then thirdly, I would encourage you to discipline your mind from a biblical perspective. View life from a biblical perspective. I believe that joy comes from a certain kind of thinking. And if we can think more times than not during the course of our day, if we can think about the ultimate source of our joy, God, and focus on God's joy, I think it will free you. It will free me. It will liberate us and fill us with joy. Because in the midst of all the problems that we've got to face, what else do you have except a 
the faith to believe that if you put it all in God's hands, there's no better place for it to be. Frankly, I don't know you very well, but I would guess that some of you are so intense in your work, so intense in your parenting, so intense in your relationships, that it becomes obsessive. And the most important spiritual advice that you maybe have ever heard in these, all these years of this lecture series is what I said to you last night. Lighten up, loosen up, and have a little fun. The journey's too short. We make it too hard. God's offered us this gift. We don't have to theorize about it. What we're called to do is live into it. And when we do, Oh, the blessings just start to flow. The joy that God has in store for you and me is so great that the writer of Revelation equates it with a perfect marriage between God and us. The writer of Revelation wrote these words, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice that said, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his people. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. Oh, those last two lines are the lines. He will wipe away every tear. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. Joy in the jungle happens when we marry ourselves to our God. No matter how painful the journey might be, God will always dance with you in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And when we dance with God, we will get a glimpse of what it means that God will bring to us the joy of our salvation. That little sky... Uh, she's quite a free-dancing spirit. I hope that the next time I see that little kid, next time I catch her in the hall, I hope I can just <laughs> dance the dance with her. For when we learn how to dance, we will find joy in the jungle. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, If you'll be seated for just a moment, several people have asked um, the last couple of nights if we couldn't have a couple of questions, if we had enough time to have a little Q&A time. And so we're going to take just a few minutes to take two or three questions that you might have uh, for the bishop, uh, either something he spoke about or something you wished he would have spoken about, um, and he didn't. I will tell you that in the parlor...
the cookies and punch are in there, but also there are some books. There's one book that Bishop Bickerton has contributed to called The Future of the United Methodist Church, Seven Vision Pathways, uh, that deals with the four main focus areas uh, that we're working on worldwide as United Methodists. Some of them have more than one pathway, is why there's seven, um, but some great great information in terms of what's going on within our denomination um, across the globe. Um, so let's just, I'll start with this question and then Bill will come and if you have one just raise your hand and Bill will come to you with the mic. But I wanted to ask the bishop since he's been to Africa um, more often than probably any of us here and Methodism, United Methodism is growing faster on the continent of Africa than anywhere in the world. So I just wondered if Bishop as we see declining numbers and shrinkage in the U.S. and Africa seems to be booming, if you could speak to that. I, yeah, I think there's, a, there's probably two things I would say that, David. One is uh, the, uh, the depth of accountability and leadership uh, training that's provided to pastors. That's number one. Uh, I find uh, a depth of commitment among pastors. Uh, the, the, the reality is they're very intentional about leading pastors in a deep spiritual walk because they know that much is required of them but but on the other the other side is um is really in in large measure what i talked about this evening um i, I guess maybe the signature th story that i'd tell you about that was i was in mozambique a few years ago and i had to preach uh out in the country with an interpreter and i've always <laughs> i've always said i'm a better preacher with an interpreter than without because if when it goes sour the interpreter fills in the right <laughs> words you know and you don't know what's going on um, but we went out into the bush, and uh, um, we, we stopped at this place, and there was this little church, and we got out, and there wasn't anybody there. And I said to my translator, uh, what's going on? And they said, well, we've got to go walk into the woods. And uh, it was right next to a freshwater well, which is evangelism in Africa. Uh, they offer not only real water, they offer living water in the same spot. And that's the real deal, is that they have been able to integrate this unbelievable care for people uh, from a physical and a spiritual standpoint. So everything is integrated together. Every outreach has a spiritual component to it. So we walk back into the bush, and there's a, we walk past the church. had already outgrown that. And there was this big tent in the back. And... Uh, uh, so we, and in Africa, when you worship, you, you, you sing, and you pray, and, uh, and you read Scripture, and then you sing, and you pray, and you read Scripture. And when you finish that, you sing, and you pray, and you read Scripture. I mean, it's, it goes on all day. And uh, at one point during the service came time for the offering. And uh, the lay leader stood up and said these words. He said, uh, we're going to invite all of the children here to come forward and bring their offering and there was a basket put on the table and the little children came forward and they started singing this song when they came forward then the lay leader said we're going to invite all of our regular attenders to come and bring their offering and there was another basket and they brought the offering then they said we're going to ask all of our members to come and bring their offering and everybody that came sang this song now um i knew what was going to happen because there was one <laughs> basket left. And they said, now we're going to invite our guests <laughs> to come and bring their offering. 
So I turned to my translator and I said, if I'm going to do this, I've got to know the song. And the song was, Za Maranza, Za Maranza, Anga Kona Wakupananana, yay. And I said, what's that mean? And he said, it's a praise song. It's a song that says, God, you are the greatest. You are the one. Uh, and we offer this offering to you because you're the greatest. So there I went, back and back, came down, Zamaranza, Zamaranza. Now what made that truly inspirational was that that church was worshiping on a former land mine from the war. I wear a size 15 shoe. And, and I'm called upon to dance the dance down an aisle just hoping that they got all the mines. <laughs> now, I, I tell you that story to say the answer to your question is they hold their people deeply accountable. They, they walk their people into the heart of God intentionally. Um, and they, they uh, are, are just uh, absolutely, overwhelmingly grateful that they have Jesus Christ in their lives. And so the preaching is always very invitational, and the response is always filled with great accountability. And I've, uh, you know, I've, I've just uh, marveled at the church in Africa. You'll start a worship service in Africa at uh, 10 o'clock, and uh, there'll be 50 people there. But by 11 o'clock, there'll be 500, mm. uh, because they'll come from everywhere, because they're so hungry for the Word. Uh, that's why it's growing. It's just, it is a, ba a basic celebration of life um, that they've that they've never lost and they've they uh, they're they're taking advantage of that great other questions i have enjoyed you being here so much it's you know i have no idea how it sparked me so i'm gonna call you sparky sparky and, <laughs> and never uh, had that one before uh, when I spoke to you the first night, I, I said to my husband, I said, what I really wanted to speak to you about is the tents. And I want to ask you uh, if we could give you a check tonight towards your tents or if we should send us somewhere and how else we can get involved if we can do. I've been on a mission tri trip to Nicaragua with the church. And um, like I said on stage um, when we had our uh, end deal where we showed a video and everything. I said, I felt like I won the lottery when I got picked to go on that mission trip. So um, I was wondering if any of us could get involved in your African experience. Well, the, the answer to the first question is, I think, and, and David, you helped me out with this, contributions to Imagine No Malaria can be made right through Boston Avenue Church. Uh, you can make a contribution on the website, uh, www.imaginomalaria.org. But the, but the most uh, effective way for you to do that is just to write a check to Boston Avenue and put Imagine No Malaria down in the memo section. And uh, we have raised uh, $61 million. And uh, I know Terry announced 53, but that's, that, uh, it's really moving fast right now. And there's a lot of momentum. And, and our drive to get to this $75 million, I, I just can't underestimate to you how important it is right now. Uh, because there is so much work being done with the infrastructure over there, and they've got their foot in the door significantly. And this final push 
really is giving them the financial resources they need to create the infrastructure that enables us to blanket the country. Now, you ask about further beyond that. One of the struggles that we have, we take teams over, but those teams are more awareness-building teams than they are work teams uh, because that we've really worked hard uh, to get the people of those countries to embrace this themselves. And, and the sense of accomplishment that they have in actually working to build their clinics. We, we provide assistance. I, in fact, I'm, I'm going to spend three weeks in Zimbabwe this summer, and part of it's taking a group of youth over to do uh, work on an orphanage. We actually do some work, but the lion's share of the work is what we, we employ Africans. They are the determiners of their projects. They are the ones who build the trust levels so that the nets are really used properly. And so we, we're very careful about how we, how we bring folk over. Uh, they're more awareness-building uh, opportunities. But the, the, uh, this latest push is just really, really important because we are, uh, we're at a point where it's making a huge difference. I, I would cite to you the best example I've got is Sierra Leone. Um, in two weeks, there will be the second countrywide distribution in Sierra Leone. We've got, we've, we've, we made one big blitz, and now we're making the other. When we made that first big push in Sierra Leone, the malaria-related illnesses and death rate dropped uh, like 80%. I mean, it just was amazing how it dropped uh, in six months. Now, we think this next push is going to send Sierra Leone over the top. We're almost there with Zimbabwe. We're almost completed Zimbabwe. One more big push there, and we're done there, we think. Um, you know, these, these little mosquitoes are really resilient, and uh, the, the, we've, we've got our foot in the door significantly. So it's taken a good bit of our money to get the infrastructure in place. This, this last $25 million that we're raising, of which, you know, we now... We now need $14 more million dollars to send us over the top. That's the most important money that we can raise because it's feeding the infrastructure right now, and we need to feed it right now because the, the deal is this. If you, if you uh, back off at all with this fight of, uh, of malaria, these mosquitoes are so resilient, they come right back in. And we've got it at a point now where if we can have the financial resources we need, we believe we can do the final push, and that'll get the infrastructure in place that will enable the, this, this illness rate to uh, drop and the mortality rate to drop. And that's, that's why we're real eager about where we are right now. So that's the best way you can help, is just help us raise awareness and help us raise money. Um, it's making a big difference over there. But, I, you know, I wouldn't mind to let... Uh, let uh, David and Bill and others know about when we're taking uh, awareness trips over. We'd love to have some of you go. Would love that. Absolutely. I can help make that happen. Another question. <laughs> I'd be happy to do that. In fact, I... I, I, I wouldn't mind to uh, give, uh, give to David and the staff uh, all four of the presentations if you'd like to have them in print. I have them. Yeah, be happy to do that. One over here. And the, our television crew has been um, 
recording these, so I believe you can get a digital recording of any of the presentations that you would like. It would seem that your efforts would need to be uh, two-armed, one protecting from the mosquitoes and the other eradication. What is being done about eradication of the mosquitoes? Great question. Of the environment uh, to, so that you get rid of the mosquitoes, or at least less. We, we don't believe that we're going to be successful in getting rid of the mosquitoes. We do believe that there is a vaccine that can help repel them. And that's, that's why the net campaign is so important at this point. I, I think I described to maybe the Sunday school class the other day, it's almost like building a bridge. We, we're building a bridge to a vaccine. And we've, we've got to continue to push hard uh, with this, with this entry-level program in order to get to the point where the vaccine uh, can be implemented. It's in development. It's being tested. Um, you know, uh, the, um, we've been, and again, it's another place where you can be very proud of your United Methodist Church. Uh, we are very active in Washington, D.C., um, uh, on, the, on the advocacy front to keep, because the United States, as, as the United States contributes, so does the rest of the world follow. And we've had to keep our uh, malaria-related budget items uh, on Capitol Hill uh, strong, and uh, so far so good. Um, and that just continues to give us the strength to continue to work toward that bridge. The Gates people are just so very helpful. I mean, they're, they are pumping the money in for the vaccine research. That's the real key. We don't think we're going to get rid of the mosquitoes. They, you know, if you, if you, it, it, there's, a, there's a book simply entitled Malaria that talks about the history of, of that disease. And, you know, back in the Roman Empire, when, uh, when, when uh, countries or, or armies were ready to uh, assault various communities in Rome, in the Roman Empire, uh, they created these bogs down at the base of the cities, and they didn't have any idea what that was doing. They, th uh, they just noticed that the opposing forces got ill, and they, they thought it was in the air. They called it mal-air. The mal-air was malaria. Um, it's been around forever. Um, it was, it's been, you know, some research maybe reveals that King Tut had malaria. I can tell you that Francis Asbury had malaria. Um, it's been around forever. And, uh, you know, we, we don't think we're going to get rid of the mosquitoes. We do think the vaccine is where we had to go. And that's, and that's the two-prong. That's the prong we're just continuing to press for. Um, that's well, our hope. One last question over here. Bill, if you can get your exercise. Alan. The Methodist presence in the United Nations. I, you know, I, I, that's, that sent me to the mountaintop more than anything else. I said this to the Sunday school class the other day. I had the occasion, and I did say to you, I have, I've had the occasion of speaking to the UN General Assembly about this. That was a real uh, unbelievable day. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I, I met Ted Turner that same week that I spoke at the UN. And, you know, Ted Turner hasn't been so kind to the church over the years, been rather blunt. And I had my clergy collar on, and Ted Turner came up and said, you're that Methodist guy, aren't you? 
And I said, yes, sir, I am. And he said, I think I need to make confession to you. He said, I haven't been so kind to the church. But your United Methodist Church has done more to raise awareness among common people than any of us bigwigs could ever do. And he said, I don't know. He said, I don't know whether there's a place for me in heaven. But I, I do know that I need to say I'm sorry because I haven't been very fair to the established church. And you Methodists are teaching me a different way. And I said, Mr. Turner, I said, it may be in the, it may be in the nosebleed section of the stadium, but I think you and I might have a seat there. And I'll look forward to seeing you. I, I had this occasion in December of uh, attending on behalf of our church uh, the United Nations Global Fund Replenishment Conference. And there were 250 people there gathered in this big room, rectangle tables. Each of us had microphones with on-off switches. And the purpose was to make pledges to the Global Fund. The Global Fund is, in essence, the United Nations Bank. And countries uh, all over the world make contributions to the Global Fund and then that money is distributed out as we try to uh, reach these Millennium Development Goals. And uh, uh, we are, as a church, we're the only contributor to the Global Fund and we're the only recipient from the Global Fund. In Imagine No Malaria, 51% of our money goes to the Global Fund, 49% goes to our own projects. However, because we're a recipient from the Global Fund, we make our contributions to the Global Fund, and then they call us and ask us where, they would like, where we would like our money sent. So we basically, it's 100% back to us. It's just more of a marketing thing. So I'm attending, I'm attending this meeting, and uh, I'm in this room, and the chairperson, Madam Chairperson of the Global Fund, starts this meeting. Everybody has their cell phones and their notepads, and it's a really boring meeting. And she says, I want to call on... Uh, the ambassador from um, Canada. And the ambassador from Canada stands up and says, we pledge $300 million. And I want to call on the ambassador from the United Kingdom. And they said, we want to pledge, uh, we pledge $200 million. I want to call on Secretary of State John Kerry. He was there making the pledge on behalf of the United States. And I can't remember what the figure was, but it was the highest one. I want to call on the ambassador from Spain. The ambassador from Spain said, we've met, our government's met, I'm sorry, we cannot make a pledge to the Global Fund right now. I want to call on the, uh, the, the ambassador from um, the Netherlands. The Netherlands has met, we want to make a pledge of $20 million. Call on the ambassador of Mexico. Mexican government has met, sorry, we cannot make a pledge to the Global Fund. This went on all day. People are looking at their cell phones, they're writing in their notepads, very boring meeting. It was then, near the end of the meeting, that the chairperson said, I would like to call upon the representative from the United Methodist Church. Now, I think maybe you've gotten a sense that I don't really have too much difficulty talking to groups of people. But it unglued me when my face popped up on the big screen. It unglued me because everybody in that room put down their cell phones and their pads and looked at me because we are the only faith 
faith-based person at that table. Our United Methodist Church is the only faith-based organization at that table. And I said on behalf of the 11 million people that make up the United Methodist Church, I'm pleased to make our pledge of $29 million to the Global Fund, more than some countries. Now that's the power of the connection of the United Methodist Church. That's the power of what it means to be a connected body all across the world because we can do more together than any of us can do by ourselves. And I was never, ever more proud to be a United Methodist Christian than I was that day because I spoke on your behalf and we made a pledge that was significant. You know, that's the power of being a part of a church like this. So I just say to you, I just say to you that whenever somebody somewhere, whether it be somebody, some reporter that reports something in the paper or somebody that says something bad about the United Methodist Church, I would hope that some of you would stand up and say, you know, there's another side to that story. This is a great church. You ought to be proud to be United Methodist. I know 